0: You've no doubt heard that old chestnut that what goes on behind television cameras is often just as fantastical and bizarre as anything that gets filmed in front of them. Well, if you've never been personally convinced by that, then through the lens of Captain Picard and friends, allow me to prove it to you. Because my name is Adam Cleary and these are 10 crazy behind-the-scenes stories from Star Trek The Next Generation. Number 10, sliding doors. We open, ironically enough, with the doors. An iconic part of Star Trek set dressing their signature, whoosh sound has taken on a life of its own in fan circles and beyond. However, the magic of television was required to mask a very disruptive flaw in their design and as a result produced a quirk of the show that very few people will have noticed. Fair warning though before I start, once you start looking out for this, it will be all you ever see. The sound of production opening the Enterprise D's doors did not create the sleek, satisfying sound you've seen on the show. That was naturally added in post-production as the sound department at the time were only concerned with ensuring they picked up the actors' dialogue. However, the real sound that the doors made was not only not at all space age, but considerably louder than the actors on set. As a result, you virtually never ever see anybody talking while the ship's doors are opening or closing, the cast all being instructed to hold their lines until the stagehands had completed the movements so that the editing team could easily remove the sound of the clunk, clunk, clunk 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 noise and replace it with that lovely Number 9, Worf loses his head. The varying nature of Klingon cranial ridges has long been a bone of contention for Star Trek fans and I've only just realised that's a really good pun. They're entirely absent from the original series, suddenly introduced in the motion picture, inconsistently enforced across the 90s and then entirely reinvented for Star Trek Discovery. Even Worf's have magically changed over the years. His original head in the first season of The Next Generation looks distinctly different from that worn in season 2 onwards. the show didn't even think to offer us a cursory explanation as to why that might have changed. It could be a natural part of Klingon development in adulthood, it could have something to do with that mess they came up with in Enterprise, but whatever they went with, it likely would have been better than the actual reason why it was changed. Michael Dorn's original prosthetic was, between the first two seasons... Stolen. Precisely who stole it and why was never discovered by the production staff at Paramount. Although one theory does suggest that certain members of the cast took several souvenirs assuming they wouldn't be renewed. Whatever the reason it left them needing a new head and they took the opportunity to improve on the look. Number 8. Asleep on the Job What actors go through to shoot a serialised TV show like Star Trek The Next Generation could easily be a video itself. One hundred and seventy eight episodes is an astonishing output across just seven years. filming regularly eating up 16 to 18 hour days as part of a grueling demanding schedule. I mean Kate Mulgrew partly got the role of Catherine Janeway because the actor originally cast didn't fully grasp this and quit on set after two days. Case in point though if you're watching a scene in the ready room between Picard and Riker then chances are this was filmed at around 2am when the rest of the cast had finished for the day. However one other interesting story that's since emerged is that LeVar Burton used to take advantage of wearing his visor to get the occasional cat nap on set. With his role in the first season seeing him largely on the bridge but with very little dialogue, he would often just shut his eyes to get a few minutes sleep knowing he'd only be in the background of the shot. Ironically, LeVar now actually lends his voice to the Calm app, where he tells stories about space exploration designed to help you drift off to sleep. Number 7. Roddenberry's Relationship Now, it's no secret that when it comes to the original series, relationships between the cast, the show's producers, and those at the network were both incredibly complicated and ultimately strange. While fan support and cinematic money spinners kept those involved together for decades after the show's run, it was often to the backdrop of internal conflict and wranglings over contracts and royalties. However, on the set of The Next Generation, despite considerable problems in the writers' room, Roddenberry developed a paternal relationship with virtually every member of the cast, taking time between filming to encourage them to think of the world they were working in and develop their characters as they saw fit. This was especially true with Jonathan Frakes, whom Roddenberry spent a great deal of time with, encouraging him specifically to always keep a Gary Cooper glint in his eye when he was in the role. And no, me neither. Number 6. The Starfield Was Real Ah yes, the advent of digital effects was a major reason for Star Trek's revival during the late 20th century. Practical effects were great, yes, but incredibly time-consuming and heavy on logistics for a fast-paced TV show. Indeed, they were forced to make significant compromises to the initial vision of the original series purely because there wasn't the budget or the technology to realise them. Case in point, how many rooms on the original Enterprise had windows? Yeah, you see. Thankfully for the next generation, chroma key and green screen were commonplace by the time they moved into production, meaning that all manner of wonderful alien worlds and strange spatial anomalies could be easily visualised in the same shot as the cast. Naturally, you'd assume that every shot of space from inside the ship was done this way, seeing as, you know, they were just in Los Angeles and not in high orbit. Not so, though, as the static starfield often pictured outside Captain Picard's ready room, 10 forward, the conference room, and any smaller window windows on the ship was actually real. Well, sort of real anyway, a heavy black curtain on rollers with small pieces of silver metal stitched in doubled as actual space and would move slowly in the background of scenes. Unless of course something more dramatic was called for, in which case a green curtain was lowered in front of it and edited digitally. Incidentally though, if you look, the stars do not move at all in season one because the curtain was too heavy for the rollers and it didn't work properly. Number 5. Data was written with several series in mind. If there is one character in the next generation who had what you would call an all-encompassing arc, it is Data. From the very first episode, his personal journey was one of exploring his own humanity in an effort to better understand both the man who created him and mankind itself, playing the Pinocchio comparisons with as straight a bat as humanly possible by just directly referencing them in the pilot. However, the version of Data that fans know and love only really emerged around seasons 2 and 3 when the writers had had sufficient time to flesh him out in a three dimensional way. However, according to Brent Spiner himself, this wasn't a happy accident that emerged from the writers room, it was actually the plan from the beginning. Initially, Data is something of a comedy character, frequently misinterpreting human meaning and reflecting back a lot of the series' morality with a childlike inquisitive nature. His evolution from there, to the show's most critical thinker and the ship's most valuable asset, was written out before filming had even begun. Gene Roddenberry basing him on an android character he'd written for another show, with the premise being that his portrayal would change as he learned more about himself. Number 4. quack. Sorry that was my Odo impression. Anyway, it's well known that the Ferengi was something of a failed experiment in The Next Generation. Initially pitched as the series' primary recurring antagonists, audiences just found them way, WAY too stupid to take seriously and the producers were forced to go back to the drawing board. It was here of course that they came up with the Borg, so it all worked out in the end. Regardless though, the Ferengi were given ample screen time in that first season, and were readily established as a major part of the Star Trek universe. Their first appearance in The Last Outpost was derided as a disaster by fans and producers alike, but it was notable for being the first appearance in Star Trek of… Quark. Well, uh, sort of anyway. Although credited as LeTech, one of the Ferengi away team is played by none other than Arm and Shimmerman the man who would go on to play the definitive representation of the species in Deep Space 9 yeah all right shut up Adam because obviously in Canon this is not the same character but Shimmerman himself has said that he considers the two parts the same and the events of the episode as an important part of quark's backstory so you're not you're not arguing with me you're arguing with him and I mean come on look at that face you're gonna say no to that better mourns than you have tried number three Patrick Stewart didn't even unpack <coughs> his wig <coughs> depending on which of his many contradictory interviews you choose to believe, Patrick Stewart was either deeply honoured to be cast in this role because he was such an admirer of Star Trek, or had never really heard of the show before and thought it might be a bit of a laugh to give it a go. Regardless of how he felt about getting the part though, one thing he is consistent on is how sceptical he was about its long-term viability. Convinced, he always states that it would either be cancelled after the first season or simply not picked up on syndication following the pilot. And as a result, he just didn't bother moving out of his Los Angeles hotel for the duration of season 1, barely even getting unpacked until further seasons were greenlit by Paramount, which means that one item in his suitcase that would have been staring at him for almost a year was his hairpiece. Gene Roddenberry for whatever reason just couldn't envisage his new captain not having a luscious full head of hair like me and would only even consider Stewart's audition if he read the part with a wig. After considering all the other candidates, he decided that you know what hair means nothing in the 24th century and acquiesced. Number two the transporter pads are from the original series. Either in a wonderful homage to those that paved the way before them or simply a clever example of studio upcycling there's a piece of the original series literally built into the next generation. The lights on the ceiling of the Enterprise D's transporter pad were actually the lights used in the floor on the original series effectively flipping the set upside down to mask their similarities. There isn't a whole lot of backstory here that you won't have already guessed though. Paramount still had the bulk of the old props in their storeroom when it came to build the next generation sets and, wanting to keep costs down wherever possible, the designers decided to co-opt any existing material that didn't look obviously dated. The pad lights looked great on the ceiling and it was a nice way to pay tribute to the original Enterprise. A no-brainer, really. Number 1. Role Reversal Now, to paraphrase Tom Jones slightly here, it's not unusual for TV characters to go through a series of reimaginings during the pre-production for a show. Indeed, this very website is positively littered with articles detailing how some of your hashtag faves were nearly very, very different. What is unusual though, and this isn't part of the song, is for two characters to be fully developed, definitively cast, and then just swapped around completely at the last minute, as was the case in Star Trek The Next Generation with Tasha Yar and Deanna Troy. Now, taking inspiration from the role of Vasquez from James Cameron's Aliens, the Enterprise D security chief was originally written as a woman of Latina descent named Lieutenant Hernandez. Marina Sirtis, who is of Greek descent, go figure, successfully auditioned for the role and was given the part. Meanwhile, the role of ship's counselor Deanna Troy, which had mercifully been rewritten from the original pitch of very horny, four-breasted alien was given to denise crosby mere days before filming began on the pilot producers decided that crosby was a better fit for a security chief and Curtis a more natural confidant and just swapped them over oh and i can see sitting there pulling a face so yes for the avoidance of doubt i am deadly 1000 percent, unmovably serious about that whole four boobs thing ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row